often God will use circumstances that are difficult and outright suffering to shape and mold those core values into what He wants them to be. But the foundation of the values by which we live is usually begun early on in life. And it seems to be that way with David. We have no way of knowing when the 19th Psalm was written. But in it, David obviously draws from the experiences he had as a youth out in the field, shepherding his father's flock. It was during these early days that David developed the foundational values that would make him a man after God's own heart. Key idea of foundational values. And a foundation is something upon which you put other things. And as David goes on throughout his life, we'll see these values expanded upon and crystallized. But the foundation for these values came early on in life as David was shepherding the flock out in the field. Psalm 19 is divided into three parts. First, a meditation on God's revelation of himself in nature. Natural revelation. Second, a meditation upon God's revelation of himself in Scripture. That's special revelation. And finally, a request that God would help him to live righteously in view of the revelation that he had been given. God has graciously revealed himself to us in three ways. First, in nature, then in the Scriptures, then in the person of Jesus Christ. David lived approximately a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. So that's not an issue for him. With regard to the Scripture, the volume of Scripture that David had available to him was very limited compared to what he had. Primarily the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But David did have access to natural revelation in its fullest sense. Natural revelation is limited in what it can do for us. Natural revelation is that which we know about God from nature. Pretty simple. We can know certain things about God from observing His creation. We can see the design of the universe and understand that God is intelligent. We can understand that God is powerful just from looking at design. We can understand that God is organized, that He's not a God of confusion, but He's a God of order. We can understand that God is reasonable. But there are certain things that we can't understand from natural revelation. For example, we can never understand anything about the love of God from natural revelation. That takes special revelation. We can't understand anything about how to be rightly related to God from natural revelation. It is limited. But natural revelation does show us that God does indeed exist. So David had natural revelation. He'll talk about that in the first six verses. He has special revelation. He'll talk about that in the second section. And then finally, he wants to make an application of those two to his own personal life. David is a person that took the revelation that he was given very seriously. Both as the natural revelation he was given and also the special revelation that he was given. It is a gracious act on God's part that he has disclosed himself to us. Francis Schaeffer wrote a text that's well-known now, entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. It's a beautiful text because it recognizes the fact that God exists. But God existing without revealing Himself to us would be pretty sad, actually. That's the God of deism. The God of deism exists but doesn't interact with His creation at all. doesn't reveal Himself to His creation at all. 
That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a theistic God who has willfully chosen to reveal himself to one of us. And David took that seriously. It's an observational matter. And that's just an observation. That the more seriously we take God and his word and the way that he's revealed himself to us, the more seriously we take God's word, the less seriously we tend to take ourselves. The more relaxed we are, the easier it is for other people to be around us. The more seriously we take God, the less seriously we tend to take ourselves. On the other hand, the less seriously we take God, the more serious we tend to take ourselves. We are so much more easily offended when the focus is upon us and not upon God. And frankly, the less people want to be around us. David wasn't that kind of God. His universe was focused around God and God's self-disclosure, and he took it very, very seriously. David took God and his work very seriously. There are some people that say, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And, I, and they truly do. But if you ask them what they mean by that, or describe this Jesus to me that you love so much, they'd be hard-pressed to come up with a paragraph. And I would propose to you that that means they cannot love him as he should be loved. If you ask me, if you name somebody that I love and said, describe that person to me, tell me something about that person. If I really do love them, I could probably give you at least pages worth of information as to who they are, what their character is, what they like, what they don't like, some of the things that they've done in their life. So it's really impossible to love God the way that he should be loved unless you know something about him both from natural revelation and from special revelation. David had an advantage that a lot of us don't have. David spent a great deal of time out in nature. Most of us who live and grew up in the city, for the most part, have a disadvantage there. I can go out in my backyard tonight and get on one of the, the chairs that we have out there and lean back and look up at the stars, or up at the sky, and see the stars up there. Or maybe... Maybe on a good night, I'll see two. But with the light coming from Ellington Fields that overshadow our area and the clouds, there are much fewer stars. They go up in East Texas, West Texas, in New Mexico, Colorado, some of these places on a deep, dark, cool night, and you see the whole sky is filled with stars. My dad wrote a book one time, and one of the things I never forget what he said, he actually wrote two books, but one of the, one of the things he said in, in one of them was, when, when, when I'm in the city and I look outside, I see everything that man has made. But when I'm in the country and I look outside, I see everything that God has made. It's easy to focus on natural revelation when you're out in nature. That's why it's good for us to get out there every now and then. It's great to go downtown and see the intelligence of the architect that built some of those buildings. And what baffles me is how they could build those buildings to withstand extremely high winds. That's one thing, and it's, and it's nice to be amazed at their intelligence. It's another thing to go, for example, up to the Rocky Mountains and sit by a spring and marvel at God with that. They're two different things. But David took both natural revelation and God's revelation and special revelation very seriously. Now, the first portion, this is a very well-known psalm, by the way. The first portion, verses 1 through 6, is a meditation on God's revelation of himself in nature. Read along with me 
you've probably heard these verses before. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out to all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. It's rising it from one end of the heaven, and it's crooked to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its feet. These are obviously reflections of David when he wasn't running from anybody so much, but when he had time to just sit out in nature and observe it. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. These verses, just like Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, speak of God's revelation of himself in nature. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it crystal clear that there is enough revelation, there's enough self-disclosure about God in nature that none of us have any excuse. No one has an excuse to rationally deny God's existence. People do deny the existence of God. But frankly, they don't do it reasonably or rationally. The new atheists, like they like to call themselves, like Dawkins, Hitchens, and Harris, are frankly, in my view, arrogant beyond description. And rather than using reason to argue with theists, they use ridicule to argue against God's existence. Dawkins has written, and I quote him now, that the universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but pitiless indifference. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Really? Let's leave out design and purpose for a moment. I, I think part of the reason that Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris don't want to admit that there is purpose behind the universe is because they may find out that the purpose that's behind the universe doesn't suit their own personal purpose. But leaving that aside for just a moment, leaving the idea of purpose and design for sight, no good and no evil? Really? What universe are you living in? They tell us that there's no good and no evil in this universe. Then why, do tell, is he so upset that people worship God? He would answer something like this, because it deludes people. It causes people to do horrendous things in the name of God. Our world would be better off without it. But I have to ask this. These are the intelligentsia out there. The people who think you and I are sub-intellectual. If there's no good or evil, then how can the universe be better or worse? It's just a question. I guess, what are you measuring that? On what basis can you make that statement? That, that Christians, in the name of religion, do horrendous things if there's no good or evil. There's no good or evil? Let's make a value judgment on the Holocaust. Was that a good or a bad thing? Well, some of these people say there is no good or bad, there just is. The pity this indifference. Would any rational person look at the Holocaust and say, that's just an indifference thing? If you turn their own words back when they don't stand up, it's one thing to use reason to argue with somebody, but it's another thing at all to use ridicule. Ridicule is a straw man argument. It's a logical fallacy. Most reasonable people reject that 
call to God. It's clear to me from Psalm 19 that David would have laughed at God. Of course, no, David, he probably would have done more to God. <laughs> but that's a whole different story. But I think he would have also wondered why our culture even takes them seriously. And we do as a culture. We take these folks seriously. Verse 1 is a summary statement for the first six verses. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. This is an example of parallelism in the psalm. The heavens and the expanse are parallel ideas. Are telling of the glory of God. You know, God is an artist. Sometimes I ask my artist friends, is there any is there any such thing as objective beauty in art? You get all different kinds of answers. And if they studied art in the last 20 years or so, the answer is typically no. There's no such thing as objective beauty. I happen to think that there is. The more that the art reflects the glory of God, the more beautiful it is. I understand that there is something to the art without reflecting glory. If you take a good art and fan art, there has to be some objective sense by which you're making that evaluation. But God is the master artist of the universe. And you know what God does as He creates? He does just what other artists do. If someone paints a large painting, you know what they do when they finish? They take their brush and they shine. God has signed His creation. We all know He did it. That's what David is saying here. God has signed the painting. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. They scream out of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Verse 2, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. That's verse 2. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. Now, this is not a contradiction. I'll explain this momentarily. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. There's a way to communicate Nonverbal. And nonverbal communication is very, very powerful. When I was in seminary, we were living in Dallas, and anybody who's in seminary knows money gets real tight sometimes in Dallas. And so our first Valentine's Day came up while we were living in Dallas. And Cindy came to me and said, and you guys don't laugh, but she came and said, listen, it's a little tight right now. Let's don't get each other anything for Valentine's Seminary, you ladies are laughing because you know she didn't mean that. She said it. I figured she meant it. So I go to I go spend the whole day at seminary. I come home at six o'clock. I got even shocked. They didn't really think a lot about it. I get a little card or something. One of the Hal Hendricks said, "Make make a card for her yourself." Hal Hendricks wasn't married to my wife. So I come home and the kids are little. I don't know if you remember this or not. Because you're in this story. I didn't know you would be here tonight. I know I go in such things. But we're sitting around this kitchen table. I come in and I sit down. And I notice to me it's maybe my favorite dinner. And there's little balloons up and things. As the dinner is being served, and I'm also presented with these questions. And I'm thinking, I'm a, I'm a beast. If I didn't get it. And I sit down and, and I remember one of the children who's here tonight said, Oh, Mama. Cindy, who is sitting to my right, and I said, maybe this is, I said, maybe this is 
I misunderstood. I thought we weren't going to give you something in exchange. And to me, then communicated with me, first verbally, and then non-verbally. I got both of them. Both of them spoke to me. The first one was, oh, that's, that's fine. That's true. I got it because I know her well enough to know that's probably what she meant. But it's, it's those non-verbal, non-verbal signs that lead those home. The tears that were coming out of her cheeks, the, the bottom lip that was quivering just a little bit, and the arms crossed was it like this. After that first part, there were no words spoken, but volumes were communicated. Fortunately for me, my, my, my anniversary follows only about a month after Valentine's. And so I was able, I'll tell you, the end of the story, so you don't say that, say that to me about husband. I, I made a point of wanting to dine with her that night, took her to the mansion on Turtle Creek. You know, that's a nice place. And modern, nice, nice necklaces that she still has. And, and I would have been much better off if I had just bought a modest Valentine's present. It cost me a lot more. But that's not the point. The point was the nonverbal communication. We all know about it. And some people take it a little too far, trying to evaluate different things people do nonverbally. Sometimes they're with their arms across. Maybe they're not trying to stress you out. Maybe it's just cold. You know, as with some of us tonight, I can tell it's just cold. These verses are telling us that while the heavens can't speak out to you in Hebrew or English or Greek or whatever language they might like to speak, they do speak volumes. That's David's point. This is revelation. This is God communicating Himself to us. That's why it says, day to day, forth, forth speaks, and night to night reveals knowledge. This is a continual thing. It's knowledge that is bubbling up. I don't know if any of you have ever had an occasion to take an alpha test. It's been around a long, long time. One of the neat things about taking an alpha test is, to me is watching all those bubbles. You, know, you drop them, plop, plop, cheers, cheers, oh, what a relief it is. It's probably been 30 years since that commercial was on. You still remember that. Yeah, it was a good commercial. And so you drop those bubbles in, and then it, and it just keeps bubbling up. Bubbling up, bubbling up. That's the description, not an alcohol, but that's the kind of effervescent description David's giving here of God's knowledge. It effervescent. It keeps bubbling up. Actually, that's one of the meanings of that Hebrew term, that it's bubbling up. That's what these first three verses are saying. That even though there's no verbiage going on, there's a lot of communication going on, and God has signed His handiwork, and there's no way to get around the fact that that's His creation. His beauty. Creation reveals the Creator continually, 24 hours a day. You go out in the morning, and you see the sunrise, and you see the Creator all over. You go in the evening, you see the sunset. You wait till the middle of the night, you look up at the stars in most places, and you see the Creator all over the place. You see order in nature. You see design in nature. So we cannot deny that God exists if we're a reasonable, rational person just by looking at it. If someone does deny God's existence, and they're a reasonable person, they're typically rational, you know that they're having to suppress God in order to deny it. Like having a beach ball in a swimming pool. If you want to get that beach ball underneath that water, you've got to hold it down. But as soon as you walk away, that ball is going to pop right back up. That's natural revelation. You can suppress it willfully. But as soon as you stop willfully suppressing it, it is going to pop back up, and you've got to face the fact that there's a beach ball in the swimming pool. And we can suppress natural revelation all day long. But as soon as we take our hand off the willful suppression, it's going to pop right back up, and we've got to deal 
that. And I think, personally, frankly, that's why people that are probably pretty nice guys have gotten Christian concerns. Turn out not to be very nice guys in public, especially when they're talking about you and me, because they know they are willfully holding that back. And it changes people's behavior. Then in verse 4, their line has gone out to all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. This, the Hebrew term for line there, some of your Bibles may translate that in a different way. That's the Hebrew word kav, and it can be translated in a lot of ways. Different translations have difficulty finding a word that made sense there. Probably a better word, considering the parallelism here for that word kav, is sound. Or noise, but I prefer the word sound. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, their utterances to the end of the world. Again, you see, this is nonverbal communication. David is using words that speak of sound, but he's already said this is nonverbal. Again, nonverbal communication can speak sometimes more loudly than verbal communication. We all have been in this situation. We all, we all know about this. First, we see a meditation of God's revelation of Himself in nature. In the next few verses, we see a meditation of God's revelation of Himself in Scripture. If nature was all that David had, he would not have been able to face Goliath and say the battle of the Lord. He wouldn't. How would you know that from natural revelation? But he has more than just that. He's got special revelation as well. Verses seven and eight. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. Fellowshipping in the Word leads to restoration. The first thing that most of us notice when we go to God's Word and we analyze ourselves against God's Word is that God's God and we're not. That God's holy and that we're not. And if anybody needs to make a change, it's not God, it's us. So the very first aspect that David apprehends when he speaks of special revelation, and again, special revelation for David probably is primarily the Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. He realizes that he can be restored. God is the kind of God that loves him, that will forgive him, that is holy, yes but that will restore him when he fails. This will be so important to him later on in his life. But that's not all. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. He goes on to say, the testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. Again, we have synonymous parallelism here. What David is paralleling is the law of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord. But what what we see now is a different result. First, restoration. Then after restoration comes wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is, is not just intellect. Wisdom is using the knowledge we have wisely. It's wise living. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Remember the message of James? We don't need to simply know the Word, but we also need to do the Word. First, we're restored to fellowship, and then we need to do something with it. You've probably had these thoughts. I've had these thoughts expressed to me. I've even had these thoughts. You are walking along in your Christian experience, get into some sort of sinful pattern, you do 
get into that mental sin, we confess it, and then no more than 10 seconds later, we're back into that mental sin again. Then we confess it, we're back into the mental sin again, we confess it back and forth and back and forth. And we, when you're doing something like that, there's no advancement in your spiritual life. David says the normative thing for the Christian should be to be restored to fellowship and then advance. That's the wisdom. That's wise living. So it starts with restoration, moves to wisdom. If we are restored to fellowship and then we're living in wisdom, what do you think the logic or what's the next thing that's going to happen? How are you going to feel about that? Content. Joyful. Happy. Don't we all want happiness? Well, if you want happiness, then you need to do it the way David did it. Understand that God exists through natural revelation, but then when we get the specific revelation, we see that He restores us when we fail. He gives us wisdom after we're walking in fellowship with Him, and that results in joy or happiness. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Isn't that what we all want? It is. You don't have to have a show of hands for that. That's what we all want. We want contentment, we want joy, we want happiness. And sometimes we get off the track and we look for that in the wrong place. Back in the late 70s, they made a movie and Pastor Dick Brown knew the section. It's John Travolta. Remember that? Called Urban Cowboy. And one of the fellows that did a, one of the musical pieces for that was a guy named Johnny Lee. He had a nightclub just like Mr. Dilly did. And they did a song that, that became one of the most famous country and western music songs of all time. And it's, and it was, it's one of the only songs he ever really did that was big, but it was called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. But we could say, we could say as Christians, we could say some of us are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. That we, we know what we want. We want contentment and happiness. But sometimes Satan gets us off the track and has us looking for that contentment and happiness in some place other than wise living. And how often does that work out for you? When you get off the track and you look for happiness in the wrong place and the wrong way. Let me tell you, it never, never works out. It doesn't seem to stop us from trying again some of the time. But it doesn't ever seem to work out. If we want true happiness and true contentment, we need to do it God's way. And God's way is the way that's revealed in His Word in special revelation. And then after joy and contentment and happiness, and we also finally have enlightenment, which is furthering our understanding of God. The last part of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The eyes are what, what we use to, to focus and see where we need to go next. So in the, in the first two verses, we see that fellowshipping in the Word leads to restoration, wisdom, happiness, and enlightenment. Then in verses 9 to 11, the fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yet much more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them the servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The Word of God itself is enduring. Grass may turn brown, flowers may wither. But the word of the Lord is going to stand forever. The word of the Lord is enduring. The word of the Lord is righteous. And verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean. Another way to say that is the fear of the Lord is pure. But the word of the Lord is enduring, righteous, and then my favorite, valuable. 
you can really face about God's selfless grace. They are more desirable than gold. You can't listen to Rush Limbaugh more than 15 minutes on any given weekday and not find out how valuable gold is from all the commercials that are coming on. And I realize gold is one of those things that has intrinsic value. It is extremely valuable and probably becoming more and more valuable and maybe even in the future even more valuable than it is now. What you are probably holding in your hand right now, at least in written form, hopefully that's getting into your head too, that is more valuable than all the gold in the world. That may be a hard sell for us to absorb. That the Word of God is more valuable than gold? Not just more valuable than gold, much more, more valuable than pure gold. One of the staples of the ancient world in regard to food was honey. They didn't have refined sugar, but they had honey to make things sweet. The Word of God is sweeter than honey. Do you believe that? Well, David did. You wonder why David's a man after God's own heart? Because he knew that. He believed it. He placed value on the things that should be valued. Gold is valuable, no, no question. It has purchasing power and all that. Let me put it another way. Maybe, maybe a way that you take the Word of God out of it for just a minute. What's more valuable to you? All the gold in the world or your family? Assuming you have a good marriage, what's more valuable to you? All the gold in the world or your spouse? I would hope you'd say your family, your spouse. Someone came in here and said, listen, I'll, I'll give you all the gold in the world. I might be the richest person in the world, but in order to do that, you've got to throw everybody in here under the bus. They're all dead. Is there any one of us that would take that very much? I, I don't think so. I really don't. Now, let's do it a different way. If someone came in here and said, I'm going to take your Bible away from you. Not only am I going to take it away from you, I've got this Vulcan mind thing where I can go in and I can erase every memory you have of God's special revelation. So now not only do you not get to learn it anymore, but you, you won't remember anything that you've had in the past. And in return for that, I'm going to give you all the gold in the world. Would you take it? I hope not. Now, there are people that would. But I hope you would. David certainly would. He realized what was truly valuable, and it was God's special revelation. Here's a way to test the maturity. We all want that test, right? We all kind of like to know where we are on that scale at any particular time. There are other ways besides this. This is one way. How much do you personally value God's selfless grace? How important is it really to you? How often do you fellowship with it? Once a month or once a week? That's one way you can tell how important it is to you. And how seriously do you take it when you do fellowship with it? Is it a duty that you need to try, that you try to get through as quickly as you can? Or is it something that you actually look forward to? That's one way to take seriously. If you do take it seriously, if you do look forward to it, if it's something that is part of your daily routine, maybe you are moving on down the road to success. Provided you're doing something with it. Because we could ask ourselves, what good does it do us to have God's Word if we never read it? What good does it do us to have God's Word if we never spend time learning it? 
David understood that. So he finishes this psalm by requesting God help him live righteously in view of lack of revelation and suffering. This thing he values so much because he understands this too. What good does it do for each of us to have the Word of God to have learned it and not to do anything with it? Not that bad. In verse 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. What David is saying here is he would like for God to help him not just with the sins that he commits. We'll talk about that later. But when he says hidden faults, he's speaking of sinful tendencies in his life. We all have them. They're different for a lot of us. The things that tempt one person may not tempt someone else. That's why you need to be real, real careful being judgmental. We all have areas of weakness. Nobody needs to be judging anybody. What we need to do is to go to, go to God and ask Him to acquit us to remove these hidden faults that we have. A hidden fault is something I know what my weaknesses are. I'm pretty, pretty sure. And I'm doing everything I can to try to hide them from you. And some of you know me real well, I might have figured out a few of them. I'm guaranteeing you, I'm thinking about all of them. And I haven't figured yours out either. That's why we're all still friends. But David starts out, who can, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. God's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can look right into our soul. David's going to do this later on after he commits his great sin with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, he's going to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's a courageous prayer. Because what David is praying is, Wipe this desire out of my life. Make it to I don't even want to do that anymore. And it's one thing if you really don't like that stuff anyway. But if it's, if it's part of a weakness, then there's the nature that it is, no matter what it is. And we've got to be willing to say, Lord, I don't even want to think that way. You're going to have to have the courage about things that we think give us pleasure, whatever it is. That's what David's talking about here. Also keep me back from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins, the word presumptuous also means arrogance. Sins of arrogance. These are in-your-face sins. These are the ones that say, yeah, I know that's a sin, Lord, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to confess it later. Keep me back from such insanity, David says. Don't let them rule over me. And when we give in to sin, it's like sin having its thumb on us. David says, don't let that be. Then I shall be blameless. Now, not perfect, but walking in fellowship with him. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in my sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let my actions, which are typified by the words of my mouth, and also my thoughts, both external and internal, may everything that I do, may everything that I think be acceptable in your sight. The word acceptable there is also a word that's often used of animal sacrifice. You really had to bring a lamb without spot and without blemish if you were a Jew for Passover. The lamb had to be deemed acceptable or hopefully not unacceptable by a priest. This is what David's saying. This is my life. I offer it to you as a sacrifice. May it be acceptable to you. 
Then he continues, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David knew that his bread was coming. He knew he could pray. He knew who encouraged him. He knew who gave him restoration when he failed. Used him and walked his spiritual life. Happiness as a result of that. And then further in life, as a result of failing at that. David knew who worked with him. Again, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written. But we do know that the things that motivated this psalm came from early on in David's life. These were foundational issues for David that he would build upon later. God's going to shape them and he's going to mold them. But the core values of David's life, the things that made him a man after God's own heart,